This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Alright, so tonight, the, the goal is, this is going to be Bezrat Hashem, the goal is to have this into a three-series uh, class. And the idea over here behind, this is the, the part of the hidden story, which we have done historically, we have been doing, we have been trying to get almost every single holiday, and I think we've got almost all of them so far. And the reason why this is so important about understanding the story about Shavuot, and, and really this is the story about Matan Torah on Har Sinai, the reason why it's so important is that the more information that you have about something, the more clear it becomes to you. It's also more, it becomes more etched in your mind. So it's something that stays with you. You have less questions, or even better yet, you know how to answer the questions. You know how to, to, to relate when people ask questions. Questions. There's a lot of a lot of times when we have questions about anything in life. It's just because we don't have a clear understanding about something. When we have a clear understanding about something, then all of a sudden everything becomes clear, and all the questions go go away. So for that, that's one of the reasons that I like doing this topic is that. In general, people have, have a lot of questions about the holidays and how did it originate and what does it have to do and how is the storyline. But once you learn it, like a thousand questions go away. So I feel that it is really, really important, uh, and especially in preparation for Matan Torah, for uh, Shavuot. Now, the Rambam, Maimonides, in the Igera Teman, is the letter to Yemen, says something very, very important, that this the giving of the Torah on, on Mount Sinai, never such a thing never occurred, and it will never occur again. What will never occur again and what has never occurred is that a single nation in its entirety heard the word of God clearly and they saw God's glory. Now, this is one of the main, um, one of the many main factors that differentiate the Jewish religion versus any other religion. All other religion, 99.9% of all other religions, how do they go and they claim their authenticity? How do they go and they claim that they have the right book or the right uh, information? Is because one guy or maybe two people in rare cases, generally it's one person that comes to you and says, hey, by the way, I had a vision. God came to me while I may or may have not been ingesting certain, you know, fumes. And God told me this is what needs to happen. And so everyone's like, okay, well, God told you and we have to go and we have to uh, follow you. That's not really convincing when there's one person. As opposed to the Jewish nation where you had the entire Jewish nation, meaning that you have roughly around 3 million people all heard God, all saw the, the craziness of, of, of the miracles that were going on over there. So this is one of the most important things and the aspects when you, when you, and then not only that, the Ramban, Nachmanides, actually puts this down as a obligation. There's an obligation to remember the revelation at Sinai. And it brings us down from a pasuk in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 9, that it says, Raki that you should guard it, watch yourself. You have to be very careful that you should not forget the things that your eyes have seen. And the Pasuk ends, and you should let this know, let them this know to your children and your children's children. So we have over here in this Pasuk, there's two different uh, obligations over here. We have here a, a negative obligation that, that you're now, you should not forget what you saw on Har Sinai. And then there's a positive that you have to tell your children what you saw. The next pasuk also goes, what is this referring to? The day that you stood before God on Chov. When the Torah speaks about Chov, that's referring to Har Sinai. So, what we see over here is something very important. Commandments to tell your children. And why this is so important that there's a commandment to let your children. Don't lie to your children. You're not going to go and, and tell your children something that's not true. Furthermore, the brisk Rav goes and says, Everything that's written in the passage that describes the events of the third month, 
this is part of the revelation. This is the part that you have to know. So we're going to go through the way that we're going to discuss this. We're going to go through the um, we're going to go through the the psukim and the verses that speak about this. And if you want to look at it, it's going to be in um, in Shemot in Exodus chapter nineteen. And you can look it up for yourself. And I strongly recommend. Before we go on to look at these these verses, we want to also go and look at a few other psukim verses that speaks about what we saw on Har Sinai. In Devarim, in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse thirty-five, it says, ladat. You are you have been shown ki Hashem hu alokim od milvado that God is the He's one and there's no other other than Him. There's Eino milvado. We give a whole class just on Eino milvado in our Emuna series. What is the pasuk goes on afterwards? God went and he and you heard his voice from heaven. When the pasuk ends, and you heard through the fire. And furthermore, another pasuk in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter five, verse one uh, through verse four, it speaks over there that what that we saw, we made a covenant, we made a brit with God on Mount Chorev on Har Sinai. And there was something very important that it says over here in this pasuk. It says, "Lo azot." God didn't make this in heaven, this, this, uh, um, you know, this treaty, you know, not in heaven, I'm sorry, with our forefathers. God made this treaty with us, meaning that if someone would come and say, hey, by the way, your ancestors saw God, spoke to God, heard God, here's what they said. They'd be like, okay, how do I know? How come my parents never told me about it? So the Pasuk doesn't say it like that. The Pasuk goes and says that, no, no, no. When God gave the Torah, God didn't give the Torah to the future generations. Because some could say, oh, oh, who knows? Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, maybe some, who knows what happened. But God gave the Torah that generation to that generation that saw God, that heard God, that that's, that heard, that saw all the miracles of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, that, that heard God speak to Moshe Rabbeinu, that heard God themselves speaking to the commandments. Now, the importance it's so important, this aspect. And unfortunately, when I do speak to either atheists or people like Gnostic, people that have questions on, on certain aspects of Judaism, there's something very, very important when people go and they decide to veer off from the path of Torah. And that is the Rambam, Maimonides. In Hilchot Shuvah goes, in the third chapter, goes and says that there are certain people who have no share in the world to come. Now, who are these people that have no share in the world to come? I, one of them is someone who denies the Torah. One who says that even if one says, even one word is not from God. Moses made it up, some independently, whatever it is, even one word has no share in the world to come. That's a very serious thing to risk. And furthermore, there also the, the Rambam goes over there and brings down another, another situation that someone is counted as someone who denies the Torah, is if someone goes and replaces one mitzvah with another mitzvah. For an example, the example that he gives is like the Arabs and the Christians, where they go and they say the Torah, yes, it was true, but now things are changed and things are a little bit different. By doing that, by saying that, that what's what's going on over here, that's going and 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 putting you in a category that denies the Torah. What happens if somebody's in a category that denies the Torah? They have no share in the world to come. That's a very serious like like step to take. That means that if you're not sure, would they ask some questions? Whatever, fine. But there are some people that say no, for sure it didn't happen. It's all made up. That's a that's a jump that you're taking, that you're risking everything. No share in the world to come means that after 120, that's it, it's game over, there's nothing there. So the importance of understanding, knowing the story, and ingesting the story is of extreme, extreme importance. Now, our story begins six weeks after Yitziat Mitzrayim, the exodus of Egypt. And we spoke about what happened. So the way that we did it over here is, is, you know, if you go look back at our previous classes, we had, you know, a class called the hidden story of Pesach, the hidden story of Passover or the exodus. This is where we speak about all the details about what happened through the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, but using all the Midrashim, the Gemara, the Kabbalah, different things just to put the story in a very flowing manner.
After the Jewish people left Egypt, there was a six-week period from when they left Egypt till when they got to Har Sinai. That's what we spoke about last year called in something in, the, in our series called the prequel of Shavuot. Now, after we finish that, so if anybody wants, you could go and uh, look back at those at those classes and just you know he, you know hear the story as a as a I guess a, a straight transition. Now we're going into the to the time where they reached the mountain of Har Sinai, and this was six weeks after the Exodus and six days before they received the Torah. Now, the goal of creation was to give the Torah. So the whole aspect of the whole creation, 26 generations since the creation of the world was all waiting for this, for this day. And they would, they finally got there. The Jewish nation got to, to Har Sinai. And again, like I said, six days beforehand, they were going to stay in this area, in this, in this location, studying and reviewing the Torah for 344 days, just short of one year. Now the question that we have to understand, and we're going to get, before we start the story, we have to understand a few important aspects. Why did God wait? Six weeks to give us a Torah. We left Egypt. So right after we left Egypt, let us get the Torah. If the whole purpose of the world's creation, if the whole purpose of everything is to get the Torah, so let's just go and get the Torah. Why do we have to go and wait until there is a six weeks period, transition period, and then go and then uh, get uh, get the Torah? So the, there's a mashal, a parable, that a king once had an only son. And it was time for the son to get married. So the king wanted to make it very beautiful, befitting for the king, for a prince. So what did the king do? The king had to go and look at his hall, his own personal hall. And he saw it was old, decrepit, it was falling apart. But now he was thinking, if he would have to go and rebuild another whole hall, it will push off the wedding for who knows how long, till it gets finished. So rather what he did, he sort of did a renovation, made a facelift on the entire on the entire hall. So the outside looks very nice. Whatever the walls happen, doesn't matter. But the outside was looking very, very nice. So he renovated it. When the giving the Torah is also like a wedding between the, between God and the Jewish nation. Now the Jewish nation just left out of slavery. They were not in condition. When they left out of Egypt, they were, they were in a slavery mentality. They were not in a, a condition mentally and emotionally to go and to be able to go and get the Torah. So what did God do? God gave it a transition period. But it was even more than a renovation. God gave them a, a transition period of six weeks where the Jewish nation recovered physically, mentally, emotionally, intellectually until they went and they were ready to go and get the Torah. But then this leads us to another question. But we know God can do anything. So fine. So if God went and we know that God not only healed them emotionally and physically, but God, you know, could have done this in the period of like right after they left Egypt. Why do they have to, if God is anyways healing us and if God is anyways bringing us to a level, why wait that six weeks? Just do it instantly. So there's another mashal, another parable given that when a prince fell ill and he was sick, and they brought the doctors, and the doctors were helping him. The doctors were, were, were giving him all the medicine, and slowly, slowly, he was recuperating. But while he was recuperating, he couldn't be in school. He couldn't be, he fell behind in his studies. Finally, when he returned to full health, he, the, the king knew that he can't just like throw him back to school. He can't just like jump it back in. Why? Because there's a, there's a period of the recuperation where even though you're healthy, now you have to get back to your original strength. So the Jewish people, they needed to recover, recovering superficially, that could have been done instantly, but they needed to recover from the deep wounds of bondage. They still needed to get to themselves fully. And that's what they had, this transition period of the six weeks, the roughly the six weeks, to, that they were able to go and they, they had the quail, the man, the, the water from Miriam's well, they had so many miracles that happened to them, they have so many things that sort of rejuvenated them, like fixed them from inside and out to become a new person, befitting to be able to go and accept the Torah. But there's even another reason. And that is, we know that the, the, the 
giving of the Torah was sort of, and the Jewish people on Har Sinai, this was like a conversion of, uh, and I don't want to get to like who was the first Jew and what, and all that, but there was a period, this was like the, the conversion period of where the nation became from the Hebrews, which were they were known beforehand, to the Jewish nation. So when it goes in, when, when somebody goes and wants to convert to the Jewish nation, and let's, we'll speak about specifically a female convert, if a female goes and converts to the Jewish nation, what we need to do is before she gets married, she has to now wait three months until she gets married. So let's say she, she goes and she converted today. She has to wait three months until she gets married. Why does she have to wait three months? So this is known on Allah, this is called the time of Havchana. Havchana is the determination of the identity of the child. So what I'm talking about over here is as follows. That if a woman goes and converts and then right away gets married, nine months go by or seven months go by, even better yet, then there is a question if she has, she's with child and she became pregnant. Now the question is, is when did this child, when was this child conceived? Was this child conceived before she converted? And hence, therefore, you know, it's going to be, the, the child is going to be, uh, you know, a Gentile child. Or did it, con- did it, did this child come after she converted and it's going to be a Jewish child and this child just came in early? So the difference really is, is if this child is born in the seventh month. So if a woman goes and converts and then seven months later she gives birth, so we don't know if it's an early Jewish child or an on-time Gentile child. I hope that you guys are following with me so far. So what happens, what we do is, is now we go and we wait three months. Because you wait three months, this way you know that, that she wasn't, you know, she wasn't pregnant, and she, you know, that anybody, any child that's conceived after that is for sure Jewish. There are some leniencies nowadays, with, which we're not going to get into. There's different things with pregnancy tests that we, we could be ex- lenient in certain scenarios. But the general, you know, halakha is that you wait three months before you get, before you get married. Now, Says the Alshech. So we have over here that the Jewish nation had to go and they had to wait three calendar months. When you take this period plus the 40 days until they receive the, the, the Luchot, that's a period that's, a nine, that's the 90 days. This is the 90 days of separation, three months of separation for when the Jewish nation goes and becomes a Jewish nation. So this is also another explanation of why we had to wait that period of time. Another reason and a final reason is that if a prince goes and he finds a wife, he finds someone that he's, he loves. He wants to marry this person. So he thinks about how is he going to do it. He's going to show him like his value. And he goes and he finds out where in the most non-stalkerish manner. He goes and he tries to, and he finds out where and how she is going to be. And before she goes there, he goes and he sends her gifts. So for example, she goes to the bakery. All of a sudden the baker goes and says, oh, by the way, the prince gives you this, uh, this, uh, present this uh whatever it is this uh beautiful cake then she goes to some store and then all of a sudden they, they call the store and the store gives them hey you know everything that you buy now is on the prince and they go to a restaurant and there's a nice dessert that comes on a nice wine everything that happens and the king the, the prince tries to go and show him like look look what i could do for you so the similar god wanted to uh manifest his great kindness so when they left Egypt, God started showing them how he saved them from Amalek. He gave them the money, gave them the quail, he gave them all these things. He said, hey, look, this is where, this is where I'm coming from. This is the power. This is, you know, this is where you're, where you're coming into. Now, those were some of the reasons of why the wait. Now, what happened was, is after the Jewish people left, um, where they were, where they were previously before they entered to the, to the area of Har Sinai, they were in a place called Rifidim. And the same day that they left Rifidim, they, they ended up in Har Sinai. And we see this in the Pasuk in Exodus chapter 19 verse 2. They traveled, they left from Rifidim. The Rifidim is the location. So the question is, why does the Torah need to tell us that they left from Rifidim? Just tell you, they, they, they became, they, you know, arrived at Har Sinai. 
The answer is, is that when they were in Rifidim, this was, um, there was a situation going on over there, and they became lax in the Torah observance of the Torah laws that they had. And because they became lax of the Torah observance, so now what happened was, is this is where a punishment came, and Amalek came and attacked them. So now when the Amalek came and attacked them, and they finally, you know, beat them, they did tshuva, they did repentance. They regretted strongly that they didn't keep the Torah the way that they're supposed to. So what happened was, is that when they left with Fidim, they were in a state of complete repentance, and they were in such great enthusiasm to go and reach Har Sinai. So, what the Torah is saying is that Vayisu Melifidim, the Pasuk tells us that when they left the Fidim, they left the previous place, they arrived to, to Har Sinai with the same enthusiasm, with the same power, with the same, with the same regret that they had for their sins that they did. And this is why we could see something very interesting. When a nation goes into a battle, and a nation goes and succeeds that battle, they will be nervous that maybe another attack is going to happen. So what do you do after you had an attack, especially in the olden days? You want to get to high ground. So you want to go and you want to get to maybe, a, you know, a uh, uh, some sort of mountaintop with a fortress to go and protect yourself that what, that maybe Amalek will go and attack again. But they didn't. They weren't concerned with it. They went, where did the Jewish people go? They went into the desert. Why? Because they realized that the reason why they were attacked was because they didn't keep the Torah. They didn't keep it to the level that they needed to. So once they repented completely and they had the enthusiasm to go and keep it completely, that they were no longer concerned with being attacked by, by the, uh, by the Amalekim. There's another factor over here that was very, very imperative to, to the Jewish nation receiving the Torah. And that is when the Jewish people left Egypt, they still had arguments among them. And when someone has arguments, when they're not peace with each other, God cannot bestow the Torah on someone who is not peace with each other. That's why the Torah says in Exodus chapter 19 verse 2, it says, Vayichan is a, is a, the, the vernacular, the terminology is singular. Vayichan is like one person came and, and, uh, you know, encamped opposite the mountain. But what is it, why is it says Vayichan? Because it's telling us that Vayichan, one nation, one nation united as one came, meaning that they got rid of all the arguments and all the, the machloket, all the, the, the anger and hatred between them, they came in as a one nation and united. And the Mesha Chachma goes and explains, it's so imperative that we are united. And obviously we know this is one of the reasons why we don't have the Bet HaMikdash now. What, when, when we look at the commandments of the Torah, some of the commandments are for Kohanim, for the priests. Some of the Kohanim are for the Levi'im. Some are there for the king. Some of them for Sanhedrin. Some of them are for men. Some of them are for women. So there's no way of you being able to keep the entire Torah. So, if the if the Jewish nation wants to keep the entire Torah, we have to be united as one. When you're when united as one, then when what, each one keeps their own mitzvot, then together we collectively become this one person. And with that, we can begin to understand the value of Har Sinai. We know the value of Har Sinai. The very famous thing, everybody knows Har Sinai was small, that's humility. There's a lot of factors that's very important that we should d- dwell upon this to understand the importance factor on on this, and especially in relation to the Torah. One of the main reasons for jealousy and competition and hatred is that everyone desires status. And if someone doesn't get that status, so they begin getting angry. And they begin, you know, feeling that I'm not getting what I deserve. I am very important. I deserve a certain level. So the beginning, this is where the beginning of controversy, the beginning of fights begin. Uh, what happens if somebody respects each other and they're humble? So there's all of a sudden all that arguments, all that hatred, we can really plug this into marriage, but we're not going to get into that. It just dissipates. There's, there's nothing left of there. God, so what, what was God telling us? God is calling, coming over here and showing us, look at Harsinai, the small mountains, the very small, showing, showing you that what, that God does not desire someone who acts important. And in fact, when you think about it, what is a man? A man eats, drinks, sleeps, and then dies. Just like an animal. So why should a man feel important? In essence, the reason why we should feel important is the Torah, is the level of what we have for the next world.
And this is what God was trying to t- tell us. Not that you know, the ending is going to be death, but rather the house, the house, the mountain, Mount Sinai was a low mountain to show you that God abhors. God does not like pride. Prideful people does not, does not go well with, with, uh, with God. Now, this is so important, says the Mam laws, that if somebody wants to learn to walk, the first condition that a person has to have is to have humility. There are many practical factors to it, but there's also spiritual factors. The practical factors is if somebody doesn't have humility, they will, won't be ashamed to ask. They'll go and they'll ask, hey, by the way, Rabbi, what am I supposed to do in this situation? Oh, I don't know what to do over here. They'll go and they'll ask. If somebody is arrogant, thinks that he's always right, then they'll obviously will misinterpret the Torah, will do the wrong halakha, will just fall into a wrong level. And unfortunately, when I, you know, dealing with a lot of people, is, is something that I see. People go, they listen to a class online, and they think they know all the answers. And yes, you might have the basics up, but you still, you know, you have to go and you ask, you have to have a rabbi. Every single person has to ask a rabbi. You can't be, you can't have the arrogance that, oh, I don't need a rabbi. I know everything. I know people that go, and they, either from the Balchuvah word or, or from not for the Balchuvah word, and they're going in there, let's say in the dating world, and let's say from the girl side, the girl calls me up and says, I don't know what to do. This person doesn't have a rabbi. I'm like, why doesn't he have a rabbi? He's about to, how does he, no, he learns everything from online. I'm like, that's the, he's going to come into such radical errors if someone does that. I, people are on the level, people think, in our day and age, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of arrogance, there's a lot of pride that people have. We have to realize, if you really want to learn to lie, you have to find yourself a rabbi. You have to go and you have to ask questions. You have to be able to go and be guided to the direct, to, you know, to direct, you know, area of what you need to do. And if you think you don't need one, then let me tell you something, you really do need one. You need one more than anybody else. It is also taught that if a person doesn't study Torah for sincere reasons, then he will not remember what he learns, even if he has good memory. When a person learns with good motives, it becomes a blessing for him. And this is why we see there sometimes people go and they want to learn Torah and, and it's just difficult for them to understand. They can't comprehend it. The Chazal teaches that this is not for an out without any reason. There's a reason for that. One of the reasons, there are actually many factors that could come in, but one of the reasons is very likely that there's a sin that this person committed. And his mind, his soul became clogged. And every time the person sinned, it caused a blemish on his soul. So you would not be able to go and understand it with the, with the, something called klipot, the, these shells of impurities that are stuck into you. You can't, you can't penetrate to that, to that pure holiness. This is why the custom of the ancient sages, the b'chachamim, what do they used to do when they would study and not understand something? They would confess this, they would do tshuva, they would do tshuva, they would weep and their heart and they confess this into God, and then all of a sudden their minds opened up and all of a sudden they understood. They understood it to a level that we cannot even begin to understand. This is also why we can begin understanding why Moshe Rabbeinu was so deserving to be the divine messenger. He was the most humble person alive that ever lived. He was so humble. He had the greatest qualification. And this is why the, the Ma'am Laws goes and brings something very interesting. He says, oh, this is very important. So I see over here that humility is so important. If humility is so important, then why are we on a mountain at all? Even a small mountain. Let it be a flat desert. Let it be, you know, whatever, even a ditch. Let's go lower. Why do we have, why do, is there a slight mountain? And says the man laws that with physical manners, a person has to go against, you know, 100% the opposite way against pride and arrogance. But when spiritual matters, a person has to have pride, a certain level of pride. Why? So when you speak about the physical, if a person has, has humility and is, is running away from pride, so if someone goes and gets angry with him, so embarrass him, it doesn't bother him. He's able to go or her, is able to go and continue on in life, be silent, not answer back. But what happens if someone has humi- this, this humility in regards to spiritual manners? So they're going to think and be like, you know what? What is the purpose of me learning? 
Am I going to make a difference, really? Am I going to be able to do anything different? Of course not. So I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. So what's the point of me learning? What's the point of me praying? Like, a, my prayer is going to make a difference? Like, I'm praying for a sick person. Like, my prayer. I know I'm a nobody. So I'm going to pray. So says the man of no, 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 no. You have to have some pride in this matter. That your prayers go places. And your learning go places. It's very, very imperative that you do that. And realize that in the spiritual aspects, yes, you have power. You have tremendous amount of power. And this leads us to the next aspect of why the Torah was given in the desert. Why not given in Eretz Yisrael? We'll go through five answers of why it was given in the desert. Answer number one is, if the Torah was given in Israel, then the Gentiles could have argued. And they say, listen... We couldn't accept the Torah. The Torah was given in a foreign land. If it's in a foreign land, it's our land. We can't just come in and, you know, say, hey, we want to join the nation. It's not our land. So what did God do? God says, no, no, no. Look at this. This is in a desert. It's a public domain. It's open to everybody who comes. Anybody who wants to come join the Jewish nation is able to, if they want to. Furthermore, the second reason is that if it would have been given in Israel, then it would have had to be given in one of the in one of the territory of one of the tribes. So one of the tribes, the one that would be lucky to get that territory, they would say, aha, you see? God, we have special preferences. We have connections. It's in our in our location. So because of that, God said, we're going to put it in the desert. The Torah is open for everybody. It's not selected to, to any specific tribe or any specific nation. Whoever wants to join is able to join. Reason number three is that if the Jewish nation would have entered Israel, and they would have to create an economy. So they would have been, they would have been preoccupied with agriculture, with commerce. They would be out with building and infrastructure. So in or, they wouldn't be able to concentrate and focus on the Torah. So a person who wants to go and learn Torah, says God is teaching us by putting this in the desert, is that they, they have to go and they have to put everything inside. Every, put their whole mind. When you're learning, you're learning. When you're praying, there's nothing else that matters. Every, the only thing that matters is right here, right now, is that your prayer. This is why the... This is why that the Jewish nation, they went and they were in the desert, that God took care of all their needs. They were able to focus completely on learning Torah, understanding Torah, and getting this spiritual power, this spiritual purity, uh, the, the, this like pure sense of the Torah, the real, the real one. So now, when someone goes and looks at a desert, in the desert there's nothing. It's a place that's barren of... No, like there's there's nothing there. It's just sand. There's nothing, nothing there in the desert. So when someone goes and wants to learn Torah, the same manner. This is step number four. Is that you have to remove everything else, all the luxuries, all the distractions. Remove it from your head. Right now you're focusing on learning Torah. It's just you and that. And by the way, this is on everything in life. When you want to go and succeed in something, you have to put it in all. You're all. So when you're working, you want to succeed. Everything is in there. When you're learning, everything is in there. Uh, the problem is, is that most of our days are are going through with like. Just just like thoughts popping in, spacing out, you know, like, you know, your mind like floating off. To be successful, you have to be able to focus, concentrate, and accomplish. And in order to do that, you'll be surprised how much, if you can like get in the zone, and you can like start like, let's say you open up a Seth, you open up a book and you start learning, or even if you're listening to a class, and especially nowadays when you're listening to a class online, you know, you're doing other things. It's in the background. It's nice. You're joining. You're listening to the class. That's great. But when all of a sudden you're going and you're like, okay, let me hear this. The amount of information that you're going to be able to go and, and, and ingest will be a thousand times more than if you were doing other things. The more the focus, the more that you'll be able to ingest in it. Now, the fifth and final reason is if the Torah would have been given in, in Israel, in El Israel, then people could have claimed that the Torah was designed specifically in that particular culture, in that particular time in Jewish history. But different times, we could change the Torah, whatever, different set of rules. So God said, no, no, no. The Torah was given in the desert in the sense that it was there was nothing changing. There was nothing there. Torah was timeless and it's unaffected by cultural change. 
Now, the Pasuk in Exodus chapter 19 verse 1 goes and says something very important when you're going and you try to understand and learning to laugh. It says, When the Jewish nation came out in the third month out of Egypt, it says, On this day they arrived at Har Sinai. What does it mean on this day? The answer is, there's two answers over here. The answer is, number one, is when you go and you learn Torah, you should cherish it as if you got it on that day. There's something very, very important when we look at the, Jew, the, the, the psychology of a person. When you receive a new product, you cherish it, right? The first time you get your new phone or whatever it is, you're like, oh, this is amazing. It's unbelievable. You get your new laptop. You get it, you get it, you know, you buy, uh, you know, a car or you buy, you know, you get your first home and you're going in there and it's like you're so infatuated by it. You're so like, it's so amazing. And by the way, even relationships, relation right in the beginning, it's so fresh. It's so amazing. You put everything you've got into it, right? When you go and you buy a new home, you're fixing this. You're making sure everything is perfect and you're making sure you give your full attention to every, every area on the house. The same thing when you go and you learn Torah, it should be bayom hazeh, as if you got it today. It's going to be so fresh, so amazing, so pure, because there's going to be an enthusiasm. Be like, I love it. It's amazing. It's so unbelievable. I'm listening to a Torah class. It's almost as if I'm listening to Torah for the first time. And every day that you learn something, it's for the first time. And this leads us to the second reason. The second reason that people go and say, you know what? I heard this information. Right? I know this story. I know this. I know that. What's the purpose of me going and reviewing over here? Says the Torah, no, no, no. The Torah says something very, very important. When we say the blessing of the Torah, Berkat Torah, what do we say? We says bless. We're saying Hashem Nosen HaTorah. Nosen means that's who gives in present. We don't say Nasan HaTorah, someone who gave it, you know, in the past. We say Nosen in the present, meaning that every time you're getting something, it's as if you're getting it brand new. And when if when you're getting it brand new, there's a special enthusiasm when you come to the, to learning, when you come to praying. Imagine it is that the first time that you're gonna go and and pray. The level of prayer that you have is unbelievable. And I deal a lot in the Balchuva world, so when I speak to people, the first prayer that they had, the first, they don't even know how to read English. You know how long it takes for the fresh Balchuva, the pure, the, right, the coming in fresh to Judaism? They could say, Ashmona Esrei, the Amidah, it could take them about 45 minutes. And they are loving it. They're connected. They're like, oh, it's there. What do you see them a year later? They know how to read Hebrew. They Baruch Hashem. They learned everything. You know, they do the whole steps and they, you know, they do the the dance and then they go away. The level, the difference is, is what when it was new, it was ah oh, fresh. It's there's an enthusiasm. Oh, I feel connected. All of a sudden, when you get used to something, it's not connected anymore. So the Torah is telling us, no, no, by everything that you do has to be fresh. Has to be fresh as if it's new. It's brand new. And when you do brand new, there's a special enthusiasm. With a special enthusiasm, there's a connection that you get over there. That connection, oh, it's a different level. This is also why, uh, this is actually a different reason why the Torah was given specifically on Har Sinai. I, I, I'm sorry, in the month of Sivan. Why the month of Sivan? The astrological sign of Sivan is Gemini. It's the sign of twins. So the Gentile nations could have gone, the non-Jews could have gone and say, listen, you know, what we do? It was given, the Torah was given to the Jewish nation. It has nothing to do with us. Says God. God goes and says, no, when was it given? It was given in the month, the, 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 the month of Sivan, which is the, the astrological sign of twins. What was the, who was the, the, the twins that we're referring to over here? Yaakov and Esav. Yaakov and Esav. So Yaakov came to the Jewish nation. Esav came to the, you know, the Gentile nations. So what's, what God's saying over there? You have part of it. If you want, it's yours. You can come. It's part of it if you want. And this is why also, it's very interesting that the month of Nisan, was this as the astrological sign of Aries. It's a, it's a sheep. The Egyptians worship the sheep. So God says, I'm not doing it on this month. The following, you know, the month of Iyar, that's the sign of the Taurus, the bull. 
And we know the Jewish people would sin with worship the golden calf, which was a young bull. So God, which, God didn't want this everlasting association. So God took which one? The, 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 he wa- God wanted to wait till the month of Sivan, which is a sign of twins, which is fraternal love and solidarity that comes in with this, with this month. Now, when the Jewish nation arrived to the Mount Sinai, there was the the arrangement of the encampment was by an order of prestige. So the elders and the leaders put their put their tent closest to the mountain. Then you have after that you had the common Jewish people, and then after that you had the Erev Rav, which they actually didn't want to go over there. They wanted to be somewhere out in the distance. And this is how they pitched, and they arrived on the first day. They arrived on Har, to, on Har Sinai, and they encamped around it. And this brings us to the conclusion of the first day on the arrival of the mountain. And during this day, God did not address the people. God didn't speak to the people. This they were weak from the journey. They were traveling, so there was no no discussion between God and the Jewish nation on this day. And this leads us to the second day. The second day in Shemot, if you want to look at it inside, it's in Exodus chapter nineteen, verse three to verse six. What happened in the second day? The second day, Moshe ala el ha'alokim. Moshe went up and ascended to receive the instructions. He went up to get, get receive instructions from God. And there's something very, very interesting that happened over here. The Midrash tells us that Moshe ascended means literally he went up to the next world, and um, the angels all of a sudden see this like flesh and blood is walking around there, and you know that's where they're like, you know, what's going on over here, God? Why is there a mortal? Why is there a human being walking amongst us? So God says, Ah, oh, he came to receive the Torah. So the angels responded back and be like, you have this precious concealed treasure and you, that, that, that you've been keeping and now you're giving it to flesh and blood? So God goes over to Moshe Rabbeinu and says, Moshe, you go answer them. So Moshe goes and says to God, God, you know, I'm nervous. So, you know, they're going to go and they're gonna, they can destroy me. They're angels. So God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, don't worry. Hold on to my throne of glory. Hold on to the Kisei kavod, and they will not be able to harm you. So Moshe goes and he goes to the angel and says, what does it say? What is the essence of the Torah? We know it's the Ten Commandments. What are the first words of the Ten Commandments? I am your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. Moshe Rabbeinu goes to the angel and says, uh, have you ever been to Egypt? No. So well, how is this commandment for you? What's the next God? You should, what's the next commandment? You shouldn't have any other gods before me. He says, I'm, do the angels have you know, pagan idolaters among them? Of course not. What's the next commandment? Do not take God's name in vain. How is it possible that an angel could take a, you, you would handle in business that you could come to swearing to take a God's name in vain? Furthermore, honor your, your parents. Do you have a father or mother? Do not commit murder. Can, can an angel commit, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Angels don't have these things. After all these arguments, the angels finally conceded, they agreed, they said, you know what? The Torah should really be given to the Jewish nation. And what happened was, is that the angel went, and they each taught Moshe Rabbeinu a different mystery, a different secret. And some of them were mysteries of the Torah, other was, was you know, different cures. And one of the famous ones was the angel of death, gave Moshe a gift also. And the gift was, was the mystery of Ketoros, the incense, which has the power to, to stop a plague. This is what we see, what's going on now, a lot of people are saying to say Ketoros. So, this was given, where was this information? This gift was given as a present by the angel of death. Now, that was a Midrash. Let's try to explain it. Let's try to explain this Midrash. Now, when the Torah says that Moshe went up, Moshe Allah Elal, okay, Moshe went up, ascended. What that means is that Moshe attained such a high spiritual level that he himself ascended up to God, meaning that he was able to go sort of like a personal audience with God. And this was a spiritual level that was higher than all the angels. And this was something very hard for the angels to grasp. And they go and they say, God, how is it possible that there's an angel among us? How could he be closer to you than we are? So God goes and God says the entire world was created for the sake of the Torah. So the angels go and say, okay, fine, so give the Torah to spiritual beings like ourselves. Give, us to, give, it, give it to us, with angels. So Moshe, God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, you go and you answer them. 
And they think that a man's physical nature is a defect, but in fact it's not. Moshe, what did Moshe reply to God in this back and forth? He was like, I'm afraid the angels are going to consume, consume me. They're going to destroy me. So what did God say? Hold on to the Kisar Kavod. Hold on to God's throne of glory. What is God, what is God saying? He says, what's going to happen? Where do the souls of the righteous go? The souls of the righteous go under the Kisar Kavod. Meaning, that's why he says, hold on, meaning that you have another advantage. The, the righteous have, have, uh, you know, a place to be stored. The, the, the advantage is, is, is more, more significant than being an angel. To the point is that, a human being has lusts, has desires, and they have to work to overcome them. And for the, you know, for the angels, there's no evil inclination. There's no, there's no, the Satan doesn't go and try to trick them to do something. And this is why the Talmud goes and teaches us that one who is commanded is greater than one who is not commanded. That the Jewish nation is, what happens when you're commanded to do something? Then the evil, the evil, you know, inclination tries to go and tries to prevent you from doing the mitzvah. But what happens if a person is not commanded? Be like, okay, fine. That's why for a non-Jew, they want to, they, they're not supposed to, but if they want to keep Shabbat, it's easy for them. You go to a Jew that never kept Shabbat before, they can't do it. Non-Jews would want to do it. Why is the difference? Because the Jew is commanded. When you're commanded, oh, I can't do it. When you're not commanded, be like, yeah, it's easy, not a problem. What's the easiest proof for this? The easiest proof for this is when you have to fast. When you have to fast, the second that you wake up, you're like, oh, that's such a headache. I didn't inject my coffee yet. I'm so thirsty. I'm going to die. You know, there's so many things that you have to fast. Meanwhile, yesterday, you didn't eat until 4 p.m. because you're running around. Yet you weren't hungry. What was the difference? The difference is that when you know that you can't eat, then you're hungry. That's why when people are not, people that know the most, the people, the biggest foodies are the people that are always on diets, right? Because they can't eat that, so they'll tell you everything about it. Oh, the chocolate souffle, the double chocolate chocolate from Belgium, and you put this on, they know all the information. 460 calories, every bite is another 14th walks that I have. They know so much information about it. Why? Because they can't. Somebody that can eat it, be like, ah, whatever, yeah, I'll eat it, yeah, I won't eat it. You know, there's a different level, because what happens when you know that you can't do something, or when you know you need to do something, then you don't want to do it. That's the evil inclination talking about it. So this is what, God is going and, and telling Moshe Rabbeinu, this is what you should be telling the, you know, the, the angels. God tell, Moshe Rabbeinu goes tells the angels, you don't have all these temptations. You don't have the ability to go and steal. You don't have the, you don't have the, the, the I'm sorry, the urge to steal. You don't have the urge to go and, and commit all these sins to murder. You don't have these, these desires. You don't have these temptations. Where does it come? Only from people that have them, mortal human beings. So what do we see from here? That being human is not a defect. It's actually, there's, it's, it's a benefit. If you, obviously, if you utilize it right. After Moshe Rabbeinu got and explained all this back and forth with the angels, finally the angels agreed with Moshe Rabbeinu. So that's how we explain the Midrash. But we have a very, very important question we need to ask. The angels didn't know this? Really? The angels had no idea. They'll be like, oh yeah, now they, these are angels that you're dealing with. It's not somebody that'll be like, you know, take them off the street and be like, here's a serve race. Should the Jews get it? Should the humans being get it? Or should spiritual beings get it? These are angels who knew a lot. Who knew a tremendous amount. They didn't know that Jewish pe- that human beings have temptations and angels do not. They didn't know what it says until, of course they knew. So what was it that they had to be told? This explains the Dubinimagid with a beautiful, beautiful story. There was once a rabbi. And this rabbi was a huge, huge rabbi, very wise and scholarly, and he lived in a large city. So because he lived in, his congregation was tremendous, and he, people were asking him questions the whole time. He was always busy, nonstop, every single day, he was, he would be busy. And he was getting older, and he wanted to sort of like take a step down, like sort of like slow down a little bit with his health and with his old age, he wanted, it was too hard for him. So, he goes and he writes a letter to a small nearby city and says, hey, listen, you know, I hear that you're looking for, you know, a rabbi. You know, I want to apply for the position. When they go and they hear the leaders of the small community hear that such a big rabbi from the big community wants to come to our community, they were, they, of course, they went and they, 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 they agreed right away. So he says, 
he says, okay, before I take the position, I have to go and I have to ask the leaders of my city to make sure that they're okay. I have permission to go and, and leave my position over here and go to your position. So the, he gathers all the leaders of his congregation. And the rabbi explained to him the situation. I'm getting older. I can't do it. It's very difficult for me. The leaders understood. They said, yeah, yeah, no, we understand what, what's going on here. We give you full blessing. Do what you need to do. So he writes back to the small city. The, city, the small city is excited. They go and they send him a caravan to go and bring all his stuff to, to help him with the move. Now, when the caravan went and reached the rabbi's house, all of a sudden the people from the city goes and they start chasing this caravan away, chasing this moving truck away. Be like, what are you doing to our rabbi? He's our rabbi. You can't just take us, you know, away from it. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the people go to the rabbi, the people from the small city go to the rabbi, be like, I don't understand. They chased us away. So the rabbi calls over the, um, the leaders and be like, I don't understand what's going on over here. Like, why didn't you let them, uh, you know, go and, and help me, help me move? And they were like, oh, no, no, you're right, you're right. No, let them come back or we'll let them. So he didn't understand. It's fine. He called them back again. They came and they packed up everything and they were on the way. Before they left the town, all of a sudden the entire town comes in and they say, no, 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 you can't go. You can't take, you're taking our rabbi. And the rabbi is going up to them and he says, what's going on over here with the leaders of, of his large community? He says, what are you doing? You, I asked you, you said you gave me permission. Why are you preventing me from going to my, to my destination? So the leaders of the community says, you know, rabbi, we're doing this for your honor. He says, you're doing it for my honor? You're preventing me to leave for my honor? And he says, yeah. He says, what would happen when this small city all of a sudden hears that a, lar- a big rabbi from a large community is all of a sudden coming to our small city? Must be that the city banished him. They didn't want him there anymore. He had some sort of dishonorable reason that he had to leave. So we wanted to show your, your people, your new, your new congregation that we don't want you to go. We understand that you need to go, but we want you to stay because we cherish you so much. But because we can't do anything, so that's, you know, we're going to have to let you go. But that's why we tried to go and prevent it for you, for your honor, so that the, the, the new location will be able to go and see that we really want you here and we are not kicking you out. So too, Moshe Rabbeinu went up to God. And the heavenly angels, they knew what the Torah is only suitable for human beings. They were only suitable for the Jewish nation, not for the angels. However, they did not want the Jewish nation to think, wait a minute, if the Torah is so amazing, so important, then why aren't the angels doing keeping it? So that's why the angels went, for the sake of honor of God, they went and they prevented Moshe Rabbeinu, so to speak, for taking the, um, the, the Torah. This is when Moshe Rabbeinu goes up to heaven, and now finally he gets a Torah. So what, what is happening over here? In heaven. We look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. Moshe Rabbeinu goes and, and God tells him like this. He says, God goes and says, This is what you should say to the house of Yaakov and to the Jewish people, to the sons of Israel. What, the, what, what, is, the, what is the difference with the house of Yaakov? Why does it say twice, Bet Yaakov and Bnei Israel? It's the same thing. But rather, what is the Bet Yaakov? Bet Yaakov is referring to what? The woman. There's a reason why Bet Yaakov is called, the schools are called Bet Yaakov. Bet Yaakov, this refers to the woman. What did God say for woman? You speak in soft language. Calmly, you, you explain to them in, in, in calm, nice words. But then what? V'tagid l'vnei Israel. But to the, that Bnei Israel is referring to the men. To the men, you tell them all the details and all the penalties and all the musal that you need to do with them. Now, God told them, what does it say first? God says, Kotomar le'bet Yaakov. And then it says, V'tagid l'vnei Israel. First it says, speak to the woman. And then speak to the men. Why does God tell Moshe Rabbeinu to first speak to the woman? So there's a few reasons for this. Number one, this is an acknowledgement that the central role of a woman is raising the children. So the mothers spend time at home with the children, teaching them how to say moda'ani, teaching them how to pray, teaching them how to do all the mitzvot. So 
what to show the importance of it, the woman gets to the first, uh, the first, un- the first uh, uncovering of this uh, of the information of the Torah, and then uh, you have another reason, which is something that is so true. Women, by nature, are more responsible; they're more diligent in their observance. Even though they're not sitting there and learning Torah all day, women are more. They, when the woman learns halacha, they keep it. They don't know. They, they they stick to it. So women are more by nature more responsible as a recognition of their dedication. God honored them by having Moshe Rabbeinu speak to them first. A third reason was the that they were also deserving of the special merit. Why? Because of the woman, the Jewish nation were liberated from the Egyptian bondage. So because of their merit, because of their schut, that's why God says, you know what, because of them, that's why they get to hear it first. And finally, the final answer we're going to give is that women needed, uh, women in general, well, all women, they reached the legal age of adulthood, according to Halakha, at the age of 12, where they're required to do all the mitzvot. Men at the age of 13. So because women are 12 and men are 13, women have this need earlier. So that's why woman got to be taught first. And God goes and tells Moshe Rabbeinu that the Torah is not negotiable. It's not optional, flexible, changeable. This is what it is, and the, the, the obligation is to serve God like, you, like someone serves his master. And the way that God goes and tells him, says, when you go and you speak to the men, speak first to the Sanhedrin and the elders, and then afterwards to the common people. And then God went and described His love for the Jewish for the Jewish people, and we see over here in Shemot in Exodus chapter nineteen verse four. It says, "It says, You saw what I did to the Egyptians in Egypt, and it says, "What I bore you on the on the eagles' wings, and I brought you to me." The, God is saying this, showing the, the, His love for the Jewish people. It says, I, I led you across the Yamsuf. I go and I took you out of Egypt. And I, I did it smoothly like an eagle soaring across the sky. But now we have to understand why an eagle? What's an eagle so important? When you look at all the birds, most of the birds, they carry their young be, below their wings. They grip them with their, with their feet. Why? Because they're, they're scared of the predatory birds coming above. They're going to come down and snatch and take the children. So they, they put them on the bottom. But an eagle flies higher than all the other birds. So what happens? So it's not concerned about other predators going and trying to attack its young because it flies very high. And if, and if a bird flies in that, in that level as well, they're not going and attacking an eagle. So the, the eagles are not scared. They put their, their, their babies on their, on their back. Why in the back? Because they fear what? From the bottom. They fear the arrows that come from the human beings or the rocks that come from the human being. So God is saying, just like an eagle, I carried you on a cloud of pillars. I put you on my back and I protected you from everything. And just like an eagle, it goes and it separates itself from the rest of the birds from the height that it flies. So to you, I elevated you above all other, uh, above, above all other nations. And then God goes and says, don't think tell them that this is not going to be difficult for them. It's not going to be difficult to keep the Torah. It may seem in the beginning, in the begin- all beginnings are difficult, but once you become accustomed to the law, they will find it exceedingly pleasant. It's going to be very enjoyable. And we see this. We see this people that, let's say, were secular, and they become, started becoming religious. In the beginning, yes, it's difficult. You have to make transitions. You have to make changes. You, it's difficult. But all of a sudden, once you become accustomed to it, all of a sudden, it's the most beautiful thing. Speak to somebody who started keeping Shabbat who never kept Shabbat before. In the beginning, it was so difficult, but now they can't go without it. They need it. 
And God goes and says, by the way, you should know that I am not demanding the Torah for myself. I don't need the Torah. People mistakenly think that God needs our commandments. God needs us to go and, and do the mitzvot. Otherwise, God, God doesn't need anything from you. God is doing this completely out of the love for the Jewish people. And there was, the Mechot goes and says that there's something very important. When the Jewish nation became a Jewish nation, none of the ministering angels control the Jewish nation now. Only God himself controls the Jewish nation. And then not only that, what do we see in Tehillim, chapter 121, verse 4? God never sleeps or rests. God is always observing, always watching, always guarding the Jewish nation. Obviously, as well to the Jewish world. But there's no ministering angels that are in, in between the God and the Jewish nation. Now, God goes and says something very, very important. All the nations of the world belong to me. But I chose you because you're most precious to me, to the Jewish nation. And I love you as a father loves a son. But... There's a but. As long as you obey my laws, no one can harm you. In, and what do you need over here? In order to, to do this, there's a few things. Obviously, you have to follow the Torah. But you also have to have unity among yourself. When you're one soul, when you're one, when a Jew, one Jew is hurt, all the Jews feel the pain. And when one Jew sins, all the Jew falls. There's no such thing as mind your own business, I want to do. No, if you do a sin, then it affects me and it affects the Jew in China and it affects the Jew in Australia. It affects everybody. There's no such thing as I want to live my life myself. It's, if you're a Jew, we're all connected. And if we're all connected, then when you do something good, I get affected by it. And when you do something bad, I get affected by it. And everybody else. And says, God, if you follow the Torah, you will have enjoy a glorious future. No other nation will be able to rule over you. But if you do not follow the Torah, I will not protect you from your enemies. And God says, do not think that just because I love them, I will not punish men. I will not punish them if they don't sin to me. Rather, and this is mentioned numerous times in Torah, numerous times, and you know, you shouldn't mistakenly think that, you know, that we're chosen by God without reason. Our, the love for God for us is conditional, the Midrashim tells us. To be worthy, you have to be Mamlechat Kwanim Kadosh. You have to be a level, you have to be following Torah. You have to keep yourself away from all evil. The choice is ours, the choice is very clear. We have to go and follow Torah. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it's scary, it's conditional. We see that. We see that, the proof and point. When we don't follow Torah, what happens? We have tremendous amount of tragedies. When we do follow Torah, look at the time, the era of the first temple, the first Beta Migdash, the beginning, it's unbelievable. We had a place, we, we were on top of the world. We follow Torah, we get the best treatment. We don't follow Torah, dot, dot, dot. Now, Moshe, God gave Moshe his final instruction. His final instruction was to Moshe Rabbeinu, do not add anything of your own or do not subtract anything from what I told you. Do, and not only that, do not tell them with any undue duress or intimidation by, let's say, dwelling on the punishments. No, you have to tell them exactly how I said it. Moshe Rabbeinu was not allowed. It was, he was forbidden to go and add something, change something, remove something. Everything that happened had to be told exactly that way. Now, why was that so important? Because if in the future, the Jewish nation will be like, oh, they scared us. They, you know, why, what can we do? It, it diminishes the intrinsic value of what we need to do. So God says exactly how I say it, that's how you have to repeat it. Moshe Rabbeinu got the message from God and he came down that very same day and he went directly to the encampment, to, directly to where the, Jew, the Jewish nations were, staying, were, were encamped and he delivered the message. First, Moshe Rabbeinu went to the women and he spoke to them in a soft and a gentle manner. And then he went to the men, but to the men, he went first to the leaders. The Arachim goes and says something very, very interesting. He says, why, why Moshe Rabbeinu also wanted to go to the leaders? Why? Because he was nervous that if he would go to the regular people first, they might answer improperly. Maybe they'll say, yeah, we want to take the Torah. Maybe we don't want to take the Torah. There was a few, you know, questions that they could have asked. And maybe they wouldn't have answered. So they said, if I go to the elders first, whatever they say, the Jewish nation will follow it. 
So that was his thought process also. So, and the Jewish nation saw that Moshe Rabbeinu was going first to the elders and he's speaking to them. So they went over and they wanted to listen. And before the elders, the Jewish nation realized what Moshe Rabbeinu was thinking. Maybe he was afraid that we won't answer correctly. So before the elders answered, what did he say? Whatever God will do, whatever God says, we will do with our complete will. They said it with such, with unity. All the entire Jewish nation said the same words together that we want to accept the Torah. We want everything that you have, everything that is going on over here, we want to go and we will, we will do it, we will accept the Torah. So we have over here something very, very, uh, you know, important. There are a few factors, and we'll finish up with a, with a small recap. That there are so many important factors when you look at the story of, of, of giving of the Torah. And especially when you deal in the mountain of Halsinai, how important it is that each and every single one of us could realize that if you want to learn, and you want to succeed. And by the way, oh, how important this is in relationships. Oh, you have no idea. If you go and if you have pride in your relationship, you know, you have pride, then you're going to always be arguing. You're always going to do that. One of the tricks of success- successful marriages is work on you in humility. Work on it. Uh, if both spouses work on it, it'll be unbelievable. But especially when you're dealing with the Torah, if you want to go and succeed in Torah, you have to be humble. You have to make sure that you go and you're not afraid to ask and you're not afraid to go and get guidance and you have your own, everybody should have their own personal rabbi, who they deal with, who they ask their questions to and who gives them guidance. They need, in, in life, there's so much that, that needs it. I, who knows how many times, you know, a week I'm calling my rabbi, asking him different guidance, different questions, you know, different follow-ups and things that I need to do. Constantly, everybody needs to constantly have this, this, um, this connection with the rabbi. And if you don't, because you think that you know everything, then you're going to fail. You're going to fail miserably and it's dangerous. It's a dangerous thing. Everybody's required to have a rabbi. Furthermore, when you go and when you learn the Torah, and I want you to try this. Try this on the next time that you're going to pray. Imagine you're praying for the first time. Imagine that you have that connection. Just try the newest of it. Try to get that new feeling, that new car smell, right? That new prayer smell, the new learning. The next time you learn something, try to be like, this is unbelievable. And the really, the, the beauty of it is, is that every time you learn something, even if you review it a thousand times, every time you learn it, you hear the, the power, the beauty of Torah is you, there's, there's so many, there's so many different layers in it. There's, there's Shivim Panim Torah. There's so many different layers in the Torah that you're able to go and every time you learn it, you can learn something new. You can learn something in additional. So really, when you're really learning Torah, everything is always feeling new. Cause even if you heard this story before, and even if you know that, but when you're learning, it'd be like, oh, this feels so amazing, so new. So it's so imperative. The, the, you know, the next time that you do something, Feel it that it's your first time that you're doing it with it. And Bizarre Hashem, next week we'll continue with the you know, we'll continue with the story and now we'll open up for any uh, questions. Alright, so questions. Let's me Right, the fixing the mistake of, of Adam and Chava. I didn't mention that uh, yeah, uh, for a reason, but yes, that's correct. Um, question is over here, a pregnant woman is not allowed to convert. No, of course, a pregnant woman is allowed to convert, but then we have, you know, the, there's a discussion of what's going to be with that child if the child is a, uh, a Jew or a Gentile. Um, okay, next question is, if Hashem only gave the Torah out of love for us and not for himself, then why are there punishments? Oh, excellent question. What is the, if the purpose of the Torah is for us, then what is the purpose of punishments? So, punishments is, is, it's very, very imperative that punishments is not something that God does out of spite. Be like, you didn't listen to me. Now I'm going to get angry with you. And now I'm going to go and I'm going to punish you. What happens is, is the, the way, the easiest way to think about it is, I don't know if I have here anything, think about a ball, right? And if you have a ball that it's, it bounces very high. Now what happens is, if this bulb gets covered with some slime and, and goo, then it doesn't bounce as well. And the more layers that you have in it, the less that, that the ball can function for its, you know, purpose. 
What happens is, is that when somebody goes and somebody has a soul, and, and well, not somebody, everybody has a soul, right? Everybody has a soul. When this soul has, does a sin, the, when well, the body does a sin, so the soul has sort of like a covering, like a slimy goo, like a covering over it. And what happens is, is that now with this covering, they cannot fully function as a proper Jewish soul. So they have this disconnect because they have this klipah, it's called, if they have this covering over it. So what happens is, is that when, when the punishments, what happens is, is that it removes those klipot. Now, it do, you don't need the punishment. If you do tshuva, you can also remove that covering and you'll function as what you intended to be. So the punishment is not intended to be something as, uh, you know, I can't believe you're doing this and I'm so upset at you and I'm angry with you, but rather it's fixing your soul of what you've placed on it. So once the soul gets fixed, if it gets a fix in this world, that's the better. If it doesn't, then there's a the next world that it goes and fix it. And once the soul is fixed, then it goes through transitions into, into uh, you know, Ghana and into, into heaven. Now, why can a soul go directly into heaven? Because if there's that covering, you're not going to be able to appreciate it. You're not going to be able to ingest all that. You have to first become healed of all the impurities. And that's what the punishments, uh, the punishments do. Okay. Um... All right. Now, okay, the question is, what is a ministering angel? So um, there, there is different to discuss about what an angel is and, and what's the, you know, the, there's different levels of angels and we're not going to go to the different, you know, the Chayot HaKadoshi. There's so many different levels of angels. I'm not a class about angels, but um, the the part that we're focusing on over here is that every nation has a, a supervising angel over that nation. And this is actually going to come into effect I think Bezalel Hashem next class will be speaking about uh, about other ang- other 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 angels that are in charge of other nations in respect to getting the Torah. So think about it: is that there are certain angels that are they're responsible for the entire you know uh, you know Esav, then they're responsible for the entire nation of Ishmael, and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, okay. And the question is, in which holy book does it say that there will be no more prophets in the world? Is this statement from Judaism? Is it from this statement that Judaism does not accept the other monotheistic religions? I'm not, I don't understand that question. Um, but why, you know, that there is no, um, that there is no prophets. We know that Bilam, for example, was a prophet. Uh, we had many, um, you know, there were non-Jewish prophets and, the, you know, there were Jewish prophets as well. So I'm not following that question. So there are. Nowadays, we don't have prophecy and that's why we don't have prophets until Mashiach comes and then there will, uh, obviously, the prophecy uh, will return. Um, okay. All right. Um Okay, the question, the next question we have over here is the love conditional or rather because the love dot dot dot. I'm not following the question. Love, okay, so, so we have to understand it like this. And I was nervous about, maybe I didn't phrase my words correctly. God loves, loves each and every single one of us. Even if we go and we do sins, you know, obviously we're not going to go into the levels of, of sins, but generally God loves every single human being, everything. Not Jews and non-Jews, God's part of God's creation. But what we're dealing with over here, when I'm talking, there's a, there's a different level. There's a different level of love over here where we have 613 commandments and requirements. So we get that, can we call it special treatment? I think we could. Yeah, when, when you do that, you get that special treatment. When you don't do that, then you don't get that special treatment. And even more so, the other nations could have go and uh, affect over you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.